This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Something else to worry about in the pandemic, opening up too soon and blood clots. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk gives us the data. We've lost a lot in this pandemic and many industries have suffered, like travel. You're probably wondering, when can I go to Florida again? Travel Best Bets Clear Newell takes off on the latest travel updates. And Meghan Markle disclosed her suicidal thoughts in an interview with Oprah Winfrey last week. How will that change the conversation around mental health? Dr. Koresh Edelati, esteemed psychiatrist, joins me. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. One year in lockdown, and we are losing more than sleep, but there does seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, at least there's more daylight as the clocks spring forward. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and host of this program. Andrew, how are you doing tonight? Spring has sprung, huh? And so have my allergies. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's fine. You get used to it after your entire life. I'm bringing you some Arius uh, next week. You, like I, <laughs> we, we were talking about this before. You don't, it's fine. You know, you, you use the generic. I do because it's cheaper. I know, but sometimes it's 70 to 80% effective only. Uh, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's also 70 to 80% of the price. Yeah, but what, do you want to be cured <laughs> or do you want to be cheap? I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm in a position to be able to choose one or the other. Cure, cure. Oh, if the, in an ideal world. I should have brought it tonight. Definitely, I'll be bringing that okay. to I you. was thankful to like look outside and actually realize that, oh, I could actually see shadows past dinner. I know. It was lovely. It was nice. I looked outside of my house and I saw the sun coming up over the mountains and it was just gorgeous. There you go. I was asleep well, well after the sun came up, so I woke up and it was raining. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Lovely, lovely. Yeah, it's nice to have the longer days, but it does have health impacts, and we're going to be talking a little bit about those tonight. Uh, If you'd like to be a part of the show, feel free to give us a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well, or email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects, the show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor, virtually or by phone. We've got lots to talk about on the program. Tonight, we're talking about uh, those expensive weddings. What can you do with the money if your wedding has been canceled or shriveled down from 300 down to 10 people? Also going to be talking about mental health, diving a little bit deeper into Meghan Markle's disclosure about her suicidal thoughts. Also going to be talking about the implications that the coronavirus has had on your sexual health health and relationships. And as I mentioned, we're also going to be talking about uh, when will we ever travel again? Will we ever get on a plane? Will we ever travel for leisure ever again? Um, I am not so sure about that. 
so we've got so much to talk about. Um, and we, of course, we do uh, talk a little bit about sex as well. A dose or two of that every now and again. So put those kidlets to bed, grab a cup of tea or your lover if you have one, but, uh, and then settle in. And because uh, we've got lots to say, but right now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. He is a familiar voice on this program, and you are going to want to give him a call. He is the Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair at the University of Manitoba, contributor to at Forbes, and he is all things emerging viruses, especially Ebola and COVID-19. Thank goodness we have him. He is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening, Maureen. How are you this week? <laughs> It's, it's, it's another week. Listen, I'm just trying to get time, uh, you know, the time zone straight. Uh, being in Saskatchewan, you don't change time, so trying ah, to keep in mind where everybody else is. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah, I grew up here, and I still can't figure it out. Oh, so. well, thanks for um, being <laughs> with us at this hour. The clocks aren't exactly correct here, <laughs> so I'm mildly confused, too, so it'll make two of us. <laughs> um, you think each week, you think there can't be anything more around this coronavirus and and we've kind of hit the year mark that year of like wow is this ever going to change you know it's hard to believe that it's been a year of masks and physical distancing and hand hygiene like never before um but uh do you feel like uh there's a light at the end of this tunnel or do you feel that the early reopenings because i think there is a little pandemic fatigue i think because of spring break as well uh, um, you know, people are kind of spiking the ball on the five-yard line, um, you know, and maybe the reopenings are having, having a, happening a little too soon, and maybe they are going to result in some negative consequences. What do you think? Yeah, there's a little column A and column B, right? So, we, you know, tonight was the first time that we've seen, uh, you know, my dad and, and his girlfriend in you know, probably three and a half months, uh, you know, and, and we're living in the same city. So there was that sense of, oh, you know, it, things are actually kind of actually getting normal again. Um, you know, so there's there's those seconds where it feels like we're almost there. Uh, you know, but then you start to read some of this, you know, the data and the trends that are coming out from uh, from out east, certainly some of the things we're seeing in Ontario, uh, you know, some of the uh, the concerns we're seeing in, in Manitoba, even with increasing cases, and obviously uh, the, you know, the data coming out of Italy with, some of their lockdowns and you look at it and say, Oh, I, you know, I, I hope we're, we're not pushing it too, uh, too quickly and that we can get, uh, you know, some of these kinks ironed out. Um, but it's tough to say right now. I think, you know, at the end of the day, we, we need to get vaccine moved out to people. We certainly know that that will help us with, uh, with curbing transmission and, and obviously getting people protected. Um, but, but we need to get it in arms. And, and I think that's what we're all waiting for. Uh, we certainly do. And, you know, I said to um, a neighbor of mine, have your parents been vaccinated yet? And she said, you know, they have an appointment March 28th yeah. and they're and they're 90. Um, I have Ken on the line um, with a question. There's something we were going to talk about as well. Good evening, Ken from Winnipeg. Good evening. How are you tonight? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well so far. Great. Um, yes, I'd like to discuss with you. Um, I'm taking metoprolol, and I'm taking citalopram, uh, and this is for high blood pressure, and a slight uh, dosage of uh, alpurinol. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just wondering, 
Uh, I do get some acid buildup. Would it be advisable in your case to uh, be taking apple cider vinegar as a natural to dissolve acids? <laughs> oh, I'm not the biggest uh, natural <laughs> proponent, quite frankly. So you're taking metoprolol for your blood pressure. Um, and Dr. Yes. Kinderchuk, you can weigh in here. I, I thought you had a question about blood clots, but that's okay. Um, so are you concerned? Um, so... Sorry, you're wondering if you should take apple cider vinegar for your gastric issues. Uh, yes, so it will dissolve some of the acids, so I can get mild heartburn. And what I'm understanding, I, I could be wrong, I'm not a nurse or a doctor, but what I'm understanding is that acid cider vinegar uh, alleviates a lot of your uh, acid buildup in your uh, system. You know, I would t take a look to start with at your diet, quite frankly, and look at what foods you're eating. I would also yes. take a look at yes. uh, if you're eating spicy foods. Um, no, stay away from them. You stay away from the spicy foods. Um, yes. You know, uh, if you want to try and take apple cider vinegar um, to help ease, you know, sometimes they say it can ease bloating or um, it may promote digestion, but it can also have a placebo effect. Um, you know, it's it's not going to harm you. Um, and, you know, you can see if it works. Um, one tablespoon in a glass of water uh, might be effective. Okay. Did you have... Okay. Okay. But does it also alleviate uh, foot problems, like if you've got uh, plantar fasciitis? Absolutely or... not. <laughs> No. I don't, I don't, I've know. never I'm heard that. I know. I've never heard that actually. But you know what? There's a lot of claims about natural products and um, natural solutions that you know are not naturally all that effective, quite frankly. But thank you so much for the call, Ken. Really appreciate it, uh, Dr. Kinderchuk. We're so we are on the line here with Dr. Kinderchuk, who is an expert in emerging viruses, and he knows all things COVID. Uh, if you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. If you have any worries or fears, you mentioned uh, Dr. Kinderchuk that we need to get these vaccines into arms. I mentioned that I was surprised that some uh, 90 year olds that I know of have an appointment toward the end of the month. So how concerning is that the, this rollout that seems to be going um, as slow as coal molasses climbing uphill in the dead of winter as uh, to quote one of the nuns from my Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it certainly is concerning, right? Like we're, we're facing it, uh, you know, certainly as uh, as a family as well. My, my wife's uh, father is 90. He's gotten his first dose of Pfizer, uh, but her, uh, her mom is 79. So she, uh, is right on the cusp. She'll now actually be able to, uh, to to book an appointment through Manitoba Health, and she's booked for March 28th as well. So there's, I, I think again, we're seeing things pick up. Certainly in Saskatchewan, uh, things are picking up now. AstraZeneca has been uh, been opened up to people that are 64. Um, but you know, I, I think now we're in that game where you want to see things moving quickly, and I think we're seeing, uh, you know, the you know. Hopefully, the, the light uh, coming at the end of the tunnel a little bit with the additional doses that are going to be coming uh, online very soon. Um, but it's never fast enough, right? So I think right now we're kind of watching transmission and, and the trends that are increasing. And I think we're all hoping that we can get enough vaccine out that that, that will counteract uh, some of the things that uh, that we're seeing in regards to the opening and loosening of restrictions and, and things that are going on as well as the warm weather. So. And, you know, it's so tough to say. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, one of the vaccines, and so I'd like you to hang on the line and talk about uh, AstraZeneca. 
We have John on the line from Calgary. Good evening, John. It's Joyce. Oh, I'm so sorry. Joy. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. My daughter is immunosuppressant. <laughs> yes. Um, she had um, an ileostomy mm-hmm. um, done about uh, three and a half years ago. Yeah. And now she has to have her large colon removed. Oh, um, I'm sorry to hear that. Almost AP because of the severe bleeding, even though she's on a special medication that's delivered by fax here. And um, is she allowed, even her specialist doesn't know. Oh, no, uh, because she's immunosuppressed or immunocompromised. I I know that all three of the COVID-19 vaccines, the Pfizer, the BioNTech, the AstraZeneca, um, have all been approved for use and they are safe uh, to use for people who are immunocompromised. uh, so yes, I believe that's. But she definitely needs to check with her her doctor on that. But yes, thank you. She has. Yeah, get a second opinion. <laughs> and they didn't get a, know. Yeah, get a second opinion, but have them look into it for sure. They can do the research. Thank you so much. Now we have John from Calgary on the line. Good evening, John. Hi. Good evening. Uh, my question is that I've got liver disease, mm-hmm. and I talked to my hepatologist on Wednesday. And he didn't know. He couldn't give me an answer because I was asking to see if it would be safe for me to take the AstraZeneca or if I had, should be waiting for Pfizer or the other, or, you know, I'm okay to take well, Am I okay to take it? I, I don't know of any data su- to suggest any harm for people with chronic liver disease, but Dr. Kendrachuk, did they look at the data specifically? Yeah, I mean, looking back to the data that, that I've seen, uh, certainly I didn't see uh, anything suggesting that, that people with, uh, with chronic liver disease um, you know, should abstain from, uh, from getting the vaccines. If, if anything, I think, again, that you would fall into that, that high-risk category uh, that, uh, you know, that would be primed for, for vaccination with, uh, with really any of the vaccines that, that are offered. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks, John, for the call. Uh, now, Dr. Kinderchuk, um, there's been some association um, uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine and some blood clots and pulmonary embolism. What, what do you know about that? Yeah, it, it's interesting, right? So we're, we're back in this whole correlation and causation question mm-hmm. right now. Um, you certainly, when we look back at, at all the, the clinical trial data as well, the, the data certainly from uh, the UK, uh, where, you know, where they've dispensed millions of doses so far of AstraZeneca, we didn't see anything that popped up, or certainly nothing was reported. Now the question is, with these cases of, uh, of blood clots and, and embolisms, uh, is this something that is due to background levels that we would normally see? Is this something that's due to the vaccine? And I think right now the consensus is they don't think that this is related directly to the vaccine. But I think, again, what we're seeing is the sheer amount of scrutiny that these vaccines are under, and, and, and rightfully so, that right now we're seeing a number of countries that are saying, we're going to take a step back for a second. Let's figure out what is going on and ensure the, the safety of the, uh, the vaccines as well as if there are any batch questions. So I think we're going to get an answer pretty quickly. Um, but certainly we're seeing a lot of countries right now that, that are coming forward and saying, we do not think that this is a correlation uh, or we do not think that there's any causation, that this is just something that, that is correlative uh, between the two. Right. And and it's my understanding that those batches that are associated with the uh deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism or even thrombocytopenia have not come to Canada um, or that lot. Um, and also that there has been a review of the safety data of the 17 million people who have been vaccinated in the in the UK and the European Union. And it, that also showed no increase, no evidence of any increased risk. 
Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you're exactly right. And I think at the end of the day, you know, Ian, people are wanting to be as safe as possible with these vaccines. And certainly, you know, I think the questions will be addressed uh, very quickly. But I, I do take, a, you know, kind of a bit of solace of the fact that we're seeing people that are acting on any sort of, uh, you know, concerns that are that are uh, arising or, or any questions very, very quickly to say we need to find the answers as quickly as possible. That's right. And we don't know the backgrounds or the medical histories of those people who have sure. experienced a pulmonary embolism, for example. Um, they may be at higher risk. They may have comorbidities. They may be smokers on the birth control pill. You know, there could be um, other factors going on. I, I'd had a, I, I noted one of the um, questions about choice of vaccine. Um, there's no choice of vaccine. Vaccine. People, people can't choose a vaccine or, or even, I mean, I suppose they can deny if they are going to yeah. get one over the other. They can say, I don't want to wait. I don't want that one. I want to wait till the other one. But that's not always a good idea, is it? No. And certainly, again, we, we have this question in my family tonight of saying, you know, should, should one of my family members, you know, uh, decline the AstraZeneca to hopefully wait for the Pfizer? And this is somebody who has underlying health uh, comorbidities. And my immediate answer was, no, you get the AstraZeneca. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the data is so suggestive and so strong across these vaccines that if you are offered a vaccine at this point in time uh, and you fall into that category, that, that is higher risk. We have, a quick, we have um, a quick question here from Lucille. Hey, Lucille, you've got about 20 seconds. <laughs> hey, Maureen. Hey. Yeah, this is uh, Lucille. Well, I wanted to add on to what I was concerned about the AstraZeneca. It's my turn to receive the vaccine in a few short weeks. And I've had a deep, deep vein thrombosis in the prior, and it's not a nice thing to have. Absolutely, and, it is not. I definitely would talk to your doctor about that. But thank you so much, for Lucille, uh, for your question. Dr. Kindershack, thank you so much, as always. Maureen, always a pleasure. All right, the pleasure is mine. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. This health show, part of health is actually being able to take vacations. And so for those who are fortunate enough to be able to afford a vacation, some people are, are struggling in ways that are unimaginable to other people, having difficulty even paying their rent or putting food on their tables. So um, with all that in mind, uh, travel is a part of life. And joining me on the line is Claire New who is pretty much Canada's travel guru. Good evening, Claire. Oh, thanks for having me, Maureen. Oh, thanks um, for joining know, this, me again. Yeah, this has been a, uh, a really interesting time. And you brought up something that's so true about travel. And it doesn't matter if you're going camping. It doesn't matter if you're going across the world. The freedom that it gives you, and so many of us, has kind of view travel as a form of self-care, mm -hmm. like wellness, just that it's the ability just to completely relax and not being able to do it. I, I live in BC and we're not to travel outside of the region we live in. And, you know, we haven't been able to travel outside of Canada for a year now. And for a lot of people, it's tough. It's so difficult. I had a patient whose twin sister was uh, nearing the end of life after a uh, stage four cancer diagnosis. And, and she 
wasn't able, she was in her 70s and wasn't able to get a vaccine, of course, and didn't feel safe going. And she just said, like, her life will never be the same. Um, it was a very difficult decision, but she couldn't travel over to, to be with her twin sister at the end of her life. And, oh and they'd spoken every day. And, you know, you hear these stories and, um, you know, a lot of, I'm a dual citizen and I have lots of relatives in the States and, you know, God forbid anybody gets sick and, you know, you're always on tender hooks when you, when you lose that freedom. Yeah. And it's, it's tough to deal with. And even now with the, the layers that we have, that the government has put in place and it's obviously to, to keep us safe against the infections, the infection rate of COVID-19. But with these new requirements, it makes it really difficult, even if it's essential travel, you know, you deem it essential. You know, I've been asked so many times, what does essential travel mean? And you would think that um, a 70 year old woman wanting to go to be with her twin sister at end of life would be essential. But for many people, it's the cost, but also the hassle associated now with travel. And, and it's I know that it's for the reason uh, and why it's in place. To, to keep us safe, but the all these layers, um, it's just made it so cumbersome and, and so expensive, even for that essential travel. You know, the uh, mandatory hotel quarantine, which is, you know, I, I understand that there's, um, it is there for our protection, but there has been a lot of, uh, I guess, controversy mm-hmm. over it because of the cost associated with it. In some cases, the, the three nights will cost you $1,500, depending on where you're flying into. And, and that's tough to take if you're choosing to go and see someone for end of life or for, for medical treatment. You, you have to go through all sorts of paperwork to be able to get that exemption uh, that you might need to go have surgery, say, in the U.S. because you can't get it here. Right. And and I understood that even one of the, it was a motel, um, there were three or four choices. This was earlier, earlier on, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And um, one was at, you know, at the airport, one of the Fairmonts. And then, but another one was a motel and that was actually more expensive that they're actually capitalizing on, on people who travel. And, and I think a lot of people are traveling, you know, for essential purposes. Um, you know, anyway, it, it, as you say, it's a very controversial system. Um, and it doesn't seem to make sense in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's, you know, but I understand it's for the safety of, um, Canadians. Um, but you know, what, what does the future look like, Claire? Uh, you know, when do you think we will be able to travel? Oh, I get asked that question all the time, Maureen. I really hope that it will be soon. And as the, I mean, it just will be directly linked to how many vaccinations are rolled out. And um, as as more are rolled out, the travel restrictions will start to be lifted. And originally, we were hearing that everyone should be able to get a vaccine by September. And I think that that is, you know, on track. It may even be sped up. And if that's the case, we'll start to see it lifted. But it's not going to be like a blanket like we saw with uh, when the, the travel require restrictions were put in place. That happened March of last year, 2020. And it was avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada. That's never been the case before. The way that the Canadian government normally looks at things is that they'll look at a country, they'll look at what's happening there and then give uh, the warnings and they are in levels one through four. And right now everything's a four. So um, the way that they'll look at it is how we're doing and then each country that they decide. uh, And as if if a country's doing well, then we might be able to add that to our list uh, that we can go to. So it might start as little bubbles. And you might've heard that with with respect to travel, there were 
certain bubbles in the world where maybe two countries have decided that they will travel between each other, including like Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're doing very, very well, and and that's okay. And we will start to see more of that. The other thing that's going to be important will be uh, a vaccine, um, whether it's a passport or some sort of certification. And there's lots of these in the works. And you may just be showing something like the yellow card that you would show in your passport when you have to go to a country where you need to prove that you've had the yellow fever vaccine to mm-hmm. go in. So there's there's precedent there. Um, but what they're hoping to do is have some sort of coordinated effort. It would take, and I've said this before, unprecedented cooperation, combining all the registries of those programs and the labs and hundreds of jurisdictions. And um, But I think that the, the one that's closest to, to coming to fruition is the one that's by IATA. And in the coming weeks, you're going to be able to download that onto your app, mm-hmm. uh, an app onto your Android or Apple device. So uh, whether or not the Canadian government, it's sounding quite promising, Maureen, originally up until mid-June, I mean, mid-January, Justin Trudeau was really not on side with this. But this uh, past week, he seems much, much more open to it, not to be used domestically. So you, if you were traveling between provinces, you wouldn't need this. Mm-hmm. But um, this would be for outside of this would be for international travel and that proof of vaccine. The big thing, of course, is going to be authenticity mm-hmm. and um, privacy of your information. Right. So the majority of the, the the ones that are coming down are the there are the the uh, information will be held on your own device and you'll share it with who you want. Right. Um, do you think with the, it, it seems that the U.S. is uh, vaccinating at breakneck speed as if we compare yeah. to Canada. <laughs> um, and do you think that, you know, that that's a deterrent for people to come here, the two weeks uh, of quarantining when there are other measures, I think that actually have been proven to work. Um, but uh, do you think that the U.S. Uh, once they, I, I believe they've, thought that uh, all of their citizens would who wanted a vaccine would be vaccinated by July um, or June or July earlier than us. Yeah. But do you think that'll be they'll really be able interesting. to come? What a, well, I, I would hope so. Um, but it's so interesting because it's kind of a reverse of fortune. I mean, mm-hmm. it, we were not wanting them to come up to Canada. And now they, unless we're getting vaccinated at, you know, breakneck speed <laughs> they may not want us until major more um more people are vaccinated so it'll be interesting to see what happens we those borders are very very critical between the two countries and i think that they will do all that they have to and whether or not we'll still need to be tested before we go or um whether quarantines will be shortened or necessary that all has to be worked out and that i would not want to be the politicians or the experts that are actually advising the politicians on that because people want them lifted as soon as possible but they they need to do what's right to keep us all safe and Mm -hmm. so um but i do know that there is so much pent-up demand for travel it's at every you know every dinner conversation in our family we're chatting about where we're hoping and dreaming of going next and so we're we're all really excited and i know that anyone i talk to this is one of the things that they have missed the most Mm -hmm. two things i want to ask you um one is do you think that we should buy air canada stock and (laughs) it's at like 29 (laughs) 35 or something today and also um um, do you think oh i now i can't remember what the second one Oh, yeah. Testing, (laughs) testing, testing. Um, I think you and I have touched upon this in the past. Um, Testing is a moment in time. You know, there's just so much reliance on testing when actually what works is 
mask wearing, in particular the KN95 mask, because it provides a bit more absorption of the virus, and also um, hand washing, physical distancing, um, you know, good hand hygiene, not going to work when you're sick, not going to places when you're ill, um, you know. And so this testing thing, there's such a huge reliance on testing. The film industry, let you know. To say right. the least, it has extremely low uh, positivity rates in the film industry, and they've got five, six, seven hundred people going to work every single day, and they've got positivity rates um, less than well under one percent. Um, so, what's you know, there's so much government reliance on testing when it's not actually, you know, it, it's it's very different than what you know than than the comfort. And I think it erroneously gives people comfort that I was, you know, they'll say I tested negative today. And it's like, that was at 1030 this morning. It's six o'clock now. You could have yeah, increased when, viral uh, load. Uh, when you're talking about um, travel, it's, you know, you have to have that test before getting on a flight coming back to Canada 72 hours prior. Mm -hmm. what, what about those three days in between? That's right. So, um, but now with the new requirements, it's really cumbersome. Um, you have to have that test done prior to getting on board a flight when when you land and then you are going to the mandatory hotel quarantine to wait for the test results you then go home if you test negative but you have another test on day 10 mm -hmm. um and so it, it's the testing it it's almost o over testing ridiculous it, it seem like it is um and and i wish that they would use rapid testing much more prevalently. They're not at the moment. Um, they're using, you know, the, the PCR tests, which are lo take longer to get the results back. And, and I, I just feel like there's, they're, they're hopefully that they're working on using rapid testing and combined with everything else you mentioned, the, the, um, washing your hands, using the sanitizers, wearing your mask, socially distancing. We're used to seeing plexiglass up, whether it's mm -hmm. in restaurants or hotels, and the whole tourism industry is ready for that. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's in time. I really hope that we see Q4 of this year uh, travel come back and, and not just, you know, traveling domestically. And I'm not saying don't travel domestically. I hope everybody does in spring and summer because <laughs> the tourism industry across this country has just been absolutely brutalized. It's just been crushed yeah. by all of the restrictions and we and no international travelers coming in, which our, our little tourism businesses and large tourism businesses rely on so much. So yeah, get out there and, and put something on the books for the spring and summer COVID, uh, you know, restrictions, um, and do of course, th do you think the flights, <laughs> keeping that in mind, do you think the prices of flights will go up? I mean, a lot of um, businesses have increased their prices because they've lost so much during yeah, the pandemic. That's, that's interesting because uh, right now I'm starting to see some that are, are really reasonable. However, there's not a lot of inventory. They're working right. at capacities 5% or less than they were uh, in 2019. And because of that, I would suspect that when they start to bring flights back in a big way, everyone is going to want their market share and they're going to get be cutthroat. They're going to put some really great deals out there. But I think as the travel restrictions are lifted and more people tr start to travel, we'll st see those rise and we'll see them rise considerably because they have to recoup some of these massive losses of not traveling. And it's not just traveling for a year. For them, many of these uh, airlines and, and travel businesses have been impacted since February when the cancellation started in Asia right. um, because that's where they were detected. And they're not back and they won't be back probably fully until 2023 in some cases. Wow. Yeah. 
well, it's a race against time between the airline industry and my hair. I haven't been to a hairdresser. <laughs> oh, honestly, like I don't know how many times I have to do my own ago. roots. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It's been a year and a quarter, in part because the hairdresser fried my hair, so I was afraid to go back. And then the pandemic, and I was actually doing some COVID compliance work, and I didn't want to be that COVID compliance officer who got COVID. So <laughs> I lived yeah, that, in very... that would be bad. <laughs> would, wouldn't look good. So I, I did, uh, yes, I've been living a very sheltered life, I must say. Well, Claire, it's always a pleasure <laughs> to have you on on the thanks, show. Maurice. And thanks so much for all of the information. And um, yeah, we'll get you back as, uh, as we get these updates. Sounds great, Maureen. All right. Thank you so much. Where can people learn about more about you and when they want to travel? When they want to travel, travelbestbets, all one word, dot com is the best place. Um, and uh, are you going to chat a little bit later about that 38% of Americans who would give up sex to travel right now? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed, we are. In fact, that was supposed to be our launch, for sure. For sure. <laughs> anyway, sex is okay. under is overrated for a lot of people in my business anyway. that's Otherwise, I wouldn't have a business if people were having sex. So <laughs> there you go, Claire. You beat me out on that one. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. <laughs> All right, you too. All right, speaking of sex... <laughs> Um, maybe. Did you know that 50% of brides don't have sex on their wedding night? And guess what else you can save uh, if you don't have a wedding? Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You know, the pandemic has affected so many people in so many different ways. Are you one of those brides who has had to cancel their wedding or seriously shave off the wedding guest list? And feeling down and feeling badly about that and having to wear masks at your wedding. Um, Well, there is an upside to the cancellation of your wedding. And if you have a story to share, feel free. Give me a call. 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Or are you wondering if your wedding is going to go off without a hitch um, and have maybe 50 people there as opposed to 10 or a very small gathering? Or maybe you'll have 75, depending on when you're planning that wedding. Or are you just saying, forget it. I'm going to take the 30, 40, or 50 grand that I was going to use toward uh, feeding all of my relatives <laughs> to using those party funds to beef up your down payment on a house. You know, owning real estate is a, is a pillar of success and a pillar, one of the pillars of wealth um, for sure. And so although I know it's extremely disappointing and unnerving, you know, to whether you should actually carry out with the wedding planners decisions on uh, what you should do or you should put that down payment on the reception hall or uh, should you get those flowers? There are so many expenses to a wedding or should you take that and actually put that toward your new home uh, or maybe you're upgrading your home maybe you have a condo and you'd like to buy a detached house the the real estate prices I'm no I'm no realtor <laughs> no expert in the real estate industry either um, however uh, yeah I do I can see the numbers going rising up 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 in a pandemic which has just amazed me I think it's up the average price in Toronto is around a million bucks now for a detached home and and it's even higher in Vancouver British Columbia um, where detached houses are going uh, over asking price and there are bidding wars uh, that are happening. You know, I I know people who have been involved in four to five bidding wars and they still haven't 
um, they still haven't uh, been able to buy that dream home of theirs. Um, anyway, <laughs> here's a text. Hey, Maureen, I don't have a question or anything. I just wanted to say I hope you're having an awesome day. Awesome, Derek. It's so awesome. Just love living in a pandemic. <laughs> anyway, um, it's not easy to, at least when you're planning a wedding, I say go ahead and plan it because that's actually fun. It gives you something to do. And if it gets canceled, oh, well. Um, try to make sure that all of the contracts uh, that you can get out of all the contracts or get your money back or maybe put them on your credit card because then that way you will be able to um, get the money back should the wedding be dwindled down to a very uh, small guest list. Um, You know, the other thing is for those parents who are paying for weddings of their children, you know, they might feel a little bit better about giving 40 grand. The average price of a wedding in Canada is $30,000. if you can believe that. And in places like Toronto, it's more like forty or $50,000 um, for a wedding. But you might feel better about giving that to your children um, as opposed to, you know, for, for a down payment on a house instead of um, for one day, one day in the life when, as I mentioned, you know, that, that day can end without any excitement at the end of it. As I mentioned earlier, 50% of brides don't have sex on their... Um, uh, don't have sex on their wedding night. So it can be a rather disappointing day, especially if you have um, bought, uh, if you've paid so much money um, for that. <laughs> anyway, so it's time to rethink those weddings. I actually think that a lot of things before the pandemic were getting out of control. And to my mind, one of those things was the elaborate weddings, the destination weddings, um, the over-the-top weddings, the comparison shopping or suffering, um, comparing your wedding to somebody else's wedding or your engagement ring to somebody else's engagement ring um, or uh, bridal gown. Um, But anyway, sometimes I think post-pandemic, we're going to actually make uh, better decisions and actually, hopefully we will learn that what matters are relationships and what matters is the people that you care about and the people that you love, not what you have. Anyway, uh, when I come back in the second hour, I'm going to be joined by a psychiatrist, Dr. Koresh Edelati, and we're going to talk about Meghan Markle's recent disclosure. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Thank you so much for joining me this evening on this uh, spring forward, spring ahead uh, day. We're going to be talking a little bit later on in the program about some of the health impacts that daylight savings time has on people. And um, also going to be talking about the implications that the pandemic has had on your sex life. But right now we're going to be talking about a subject that has been stigmatized for a very long time. For a long time prior to this subject, depression was stigmatized or any type of mental illness. But death by suicide was something that was rarely discussed. There was a lot of fear. There were ideas that if you asked somebody if they were suicidal, that you might give them the idea to die by suicide. Well, helping us to dispel some of these myths like um, suicide doesn't impact 
wealthy people or famous people. Um, but did you realize that every day an average of more than 10 Canadians die by suicide? So helping us to go through some of this and talk about this very sensitive subject after Meghan Markle's disclosure of her suicidal thoughts in an interview with Oprah Winfrey is Dr. Koresh Adelati. He is a psychiatrist and the medical director at Elumine Center for Brain Excellence. Good evening, Dr. Adelati. How are you? How are you doing, Maureen? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well as well. Thank you very much. Um, This is a very difficult subject, um, death by suicide. We we don't talk about it. We are afraid. Oftentimes people will say they're afraid their son might die by suicide or their husband or, um, but although uh, many people are lost to suicide, for every person lost to suicide, many more experience thoughts of suicide or make suicide attempts. And so this is what Meghan Markle disclosed last week in an interview with um, Oprah Winfrey, um, that, you know, she had in fact experienced suicidal thoughts. How common are suicidal thoughts and why might somebody like Meghan Markle, because a lot of people quite frankly don't believe her, um, but why might somebody like that, I, I can think of my own ideas, but you're the doctor, <laughs> you're the psychiatrist, um, why might somebody um, experience suicidal thoughts in her uh, situation? Well, you know, Maureen, it's, uh, it's a unique situation because you have somebody who's in the public uh, eye disclosing something so stigmatized. But let me just uh, give you four different uh, cases. Uh, so uh, just picture maybe case one, a teenage girl. Um, she's a cyberbully because uh, she just happened to post a Snapchat picture of herself. And basically she sees no way out. Case two, think of a woman who's uh, the breadwinner for the family, and basically after losing her job, she decides to put all her savings into stock uh, stock market, and, you know, of course, the stock market is very uh, unpredictable, crashes, she loses all her savings. Again, she sees no way out. And then um, imagine a man diagnosed with a chronic pain disorder, and all he hears is that he has to live with that pain every single day. Again, he sees no way out. So then we have Meghan Merkel, a member of the royal family, constantly under, under media pressure, and she's struggling to get support for her mental health issues. And of course, she sees no way out. The common element, Maureen, all of these people is helplessness. It's a, it's a, it's a perceived feeling uh, that uh, there's no one out there who can help me out of my struggles. And, um, you know, everyone at some point has thoughts that, um, you know, they're hopeless and they're sometimes bordering, uh, I don't want to be around, you know, in a passive kind of suicidal thought. But when it gets to be an active, uh, pervasive phenomenon, when the person constantly has these thoughts that, hey, there's nothing I can do to change my situation, that's when we start to be concerned. And so when we look at Meghan Merkel's uh, admission, really she uh, did not see any way out of her situation. And everybody, you know, of course, thinks that you know, she's got everything that she can ever uh, want and ever imagine, you know, all the uh, royalty, um, I guess, perks. But she didn't see, she didn't have that. She didn't experience that. And of course, you know, she had these very dark thoughts. Right. And and she was a woman who uh, spoke up for 
other women. Uh, she's a very progressive woman, she's a very intelligent woman, and, and she had freedom. She had a job, unlike Kate Middleton, who was really raised within that realm, um, sort of that royal world. Um, but she had actually lived and she had experienced. She'd been married before. Um, and, and she was, as she said, she was silent and she was silenced. And, and she also, what, what struck me was she hadn't been out um, of the castle for, I think she'd been out twice in four months. And they were also saying to her, well, you're all over the place. You're out there everywhere. Um, I- intimating that, you know, she had been going out and she said, I, I haven't been out at all, but, it, but I gather it was the tabloids is what they were referring to. Um, and so when somebody has to hand over their passport and hand over their keys and, you know, they are directed somebody in her position who is oppressed basically. Um, and I can definitely see where somebody like that would see no way out as compared with Kate Middleton, who understood, um, really had a much better understanding of what that life would be like. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Uh, The feeling of helplessness that she experienced. I mean, this is someone who's, like you said, an accomplished actress who's who's been through it, um, you know, who's been through life before. Uh, and, and this is a situation that's very new to her, that she has basically no way of reaching out to get help. Um, and, you know, the, her admission really helped uh, the discussion of how many people out there suffer in silence. And some eventually end their lives without anyone ever uh, reaching out to them or helping them. And her situation was, you know, at least uh, for temporary uh you know, time. She, she was in that situation. Now, uh, if you have any questions for the doctor, by the way, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. We're talking about mental illness. Uh, we're talking specifically about death by suicide. But if you have any other questions at all, um, feel free to give us a call. Um, there is this idea that um, you know you could put the idea of death by suicide into somebody's head. Um, so people are afraid, you know, as clinicians, we are taught to ask somebody if they are feeling suicidal. I'm very comfortable with that. Um, but a lot of people are not, um, comfortable with that. Um, what, what is your thought or advice on, um, whether you can put that idea into somebody's head? You know, Maureen, it's interesting because when I was doing my, um, residency training and and when I was in medical school, I, I had very similar ideas. I actually, you know, would think, oh, wow, if I talk about suicide, you know, is, am, I, am I really putting thoughts in there? And it's actually not true. Um, when you um, close up the conversation, in fact, um, it does more harm to that person than any good. Because what happens is you have stigmatized this, this concept in your head already, and uh, the person who is experiencing these suicidal thoughts is thinking this is a uh, difficult uh, subject for me to talk about. People are not going to understand me. And so they already are predisposed to not, you know, expressing themselves. And of course, you know, when the uh, loved one or the professional uh, doesn't bring it up because they're afraid to put thoughts in the person's head, they're actually doing, um, doing that person more harm. Um, If it's, if the subject is raised, then the person can get help. Absolutely, and, uh, you can you can find out if there is there is stuff that uh, maybe can be prevented. You know, reducing some of the risk factors uh, that this person um, 
has uh, you know is backing up the suicidal ideations and the thoughts that they didn't want in life. And I just want to give the Canada Suicide Prevention Service hotline, which is open twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five days a year. It's eight three three four five six four five six six. If you are feeling uh, suicidal, eight three three four five six four five six six. Um, so we had a caller who has um, left a message, um, asked to mention that Kate Middleton wasn't initially part of nobility, met Prince, in, whatever, in college only, actually met Prince, Prince in um, high school, but it was a private um, high school. And if you're going to school with um, any member of the royal family, you're up there. <laughs> you, you understand that life. And they went out for a very long time, um, started as teenagers, if you recall. They, um, you know, she was dubbed weighty Katie for a while there. Um, so I think she had a better idea. And I think perhaps, um, Dr. Uh, Edelotti, she was a different temperament and, and does the temperament matter, um, when it comes to somebody who may feel certain stressors or certain pressures, I'm going to ask you to hang on the line as we talk about that. And, um, just having suicidal thoughts, people who live with a suicidal brain. Here we are talking about death by suicide with Dr. Koresh Edelotti. He is a psychiatrist and the medical director at Mind Centers for Brain Excellence. I do want to give out the Canada Suicide Prevention Service line. It's 833-456-4566. Dr. Edelotti, thank you for staying on the line. My pleasure. Uh, now, you mentioned that a lot of people feel that there's no way out. And, and I have a friend who actually died by suicide, and he had financial issues and he had also attempted um, about a year and a half prior. Um, what are some of the other risk factors for death by suicide, and, and who's at greater risk? Well, you know, the, the, first, the first thing uh, is to divide up uh, risk factors into chronic and acute risk factors, right? So um, one of the uh, biggest risk factors involving suicide is uh, if they had, there's a mental health uh, issue, a mental health disorder that is untreated uh, and uh, without any support, basically, uh, that's in place for that person. Um, and if you look at uh, acute risk factors, um, one of the things that we often see is uh, when someone has high anxiety or agitation. And I know you mentioned uh, before temperament. Uh, they, they have done some studies and uh, they've also looked at um, impulsivity as being uh, one of the kind of uh, qualities or personality traits that can actually uh, provide a risk to the person who has already suicidal thoughts. Um, I will say my friend was highly impulsive, made some impulsive decisions that led to his financial issues, you know. Yeah, the combination of anxiety and impulsivity is never a good combination when someone doesn't see a way out. That's right. And then he started um, drinking excessively. Uh, that That's going to just add to it. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's definitely a number of these factors. You know, someone having a family history of uh, a mental health disorder or suicide, um, and, and now I'm talking a little bit about chronic uh, risk factors, history of uh, trauma or abuse, uh, if someone has had a major uh, mood disorder or, or something like a psychosis, uh, psychotic disorder such as schizophrenia, these are typically um, high-risk factors chronically. 
Uh, and of course, you know, for in terms of acute risk factor, the impulsivity, the high agitation and anxiety are big ones. And, and are men at greater risk uh, than women? Um, the risk is not that different. Is the completion risk that's actually uh, men typically um, are uh, more successful at completing suicide, and uh, you know the means that they use to attempt suicide are more. Um, violence, so the likelihood of completion is more. And and how about those who are incarcerated, people who are sentenced to federal prison? Are, are, would they be at higher risk? Uh, certainly. Uh, they, I mean, they, they you know, talked about helplessness, and um, they are put in a place where there's absolutely no hope for them to uh, get out. Uh, you know, some, sometimes you see that people have resilience, and despite their life in prison, they still have hope they still have the ability to pull themselves out of um, their uh, overall view of life. Mm-hmm. And that can be a protective factor for them. And the other thing, of course, is people, if they have faith and, you know, they, they have um, a support network. So even if someone's in a prison system, if uh, the, health, the professionals around them uh, give them hope and give them uh, purpose, oftentimes that could be a good preventative tool. Right. Um, you know, what uh, I, is there hope for people who have suicidal thoughts and what are some of the treatments um, for, for them? Uh, well, absolutely, there is hope. Um, I mean, the first step would be to reach out. Um, you know, and one of my beefs with, this, with our system is we oftentimes uh, diagnose things uh, rather than preventing. And, you know, um, it's uh, so much better to start by uh, looking into uh, risk factors, uh, kind of precursors of suicidality. So these people do have hope, but they have to first reach out to a mental health professional. If, uh, if it's a mental health issue that they're struggling with, if it's a chronic illness, oftentimes it's very similar. Um, you know, we sometimes uh, pay a lot of attention to mental health disorders, but uh, someone with a very uh, difficult chronic health condition, medical condition, uh, is also at risk for that. Um, and I think the biggest uh, factor here is uh, to reach out and then be able to get some support around so that when they are going into that dark tunnel with no, in, uh, no end in sight, they have uh, somebody to you know hold out a hand and uh, pull them out of that. And is, is medication helpful? Uh, medication can reduce uh, certainly some of the difficulties. For example, if the person has depression or anxiety, uh, those medications can reduce uh, you know, the risk factors that we know of, uh, which is both of those, depression and anxiety. Uh, in terms of impulsivity, very similarly, some medications can be helpful by reducing some of that impulse control uh, issues. Um, but it has to be a more multidisciplinary approach. Um, and, you know, oftentimes uh, psychotherapy or talk therapy, reaching out to a counselor as well on top of uh, taking the appropriate medications can be very, very helpful for that person. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Edelati. I really appreciate your insight on this tragic and potentially preventable public health problem um, that is one of our leading causes of death. Well, Absolutely. And for more information, you can go to elumind.com. 
It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. How has your bedroom life been over the past year? Well, there certainly are sexual health implications of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they are a, a multitude of issues that patients have complained about that you might be experiencing. Um, We know that the coronavirus transmission occurs via inhalation and touching infected surfaces, although it's not as um, prevalent that way. Uh, Currently, there's no evidence to support that uh, the coronavirus is sexually transmitted, but there are sexual behaviors that pose a higher risk of transmissibility or infectivity because of asymptomatic carriers. Think kissing and uh, kissing outside of your relationship. So non-monogamy plays a key role in transmission of this virus. There are also new dating possibilities and intimacy issues are certainly highlighted in this pandemic. And we know that sexual activity has a positive impact on your immune response, on your psychological health, on your cognitive function, like your memory. Um, and it could also, it also has the potential to mitigate uh, stressors like anxiety. It may ward off depression. And, um, you know, but this COVID-19 pandemic just keeps giving over and over and over again. And it can indirectly impact uh, sexual functions and also impact your overall health. One of the benefits that we have seen in this pandemic is the increased awareness of healthcare providers on sexual health implications related to uh, COVID-19. We have seen government officials who have never said the word sex actually recommend glory holes for you. Um, Also, telemedicine has um, risen out of uh, the offices of of many clinicians, myself included. Um, And and that has a, a very important role in allowing continued support during lovers lockdown and also can help to prevent worsening of sexual, mental and and physical health after the pandemic and and certainly during the pandemic. I mean, I I do online uh, consults for people and couples and um, and there's been a dramatic rise in that. So, you know, and I think it's been extremely beneficial because, you know, it's a private HIPAA compliant for privacy um, uh, uh, way to speak about uh, issues that were, you know, really limited to the bedroom. That's something that people didn't actually discuss, but realize when you're in lockdown with the same person for a year, um, that, you know, it might affect your intimacy. People get anxious. They, um, may suffer depression. They may suffer with financial issues that can lead to anxiety and depression. Um, something else that has been a benefit of the, uh, pandemic is the safe sex practices during the pandemic. And so when considering safe sex practices in COVID-19, we must address several different, uh, scenarios. Um, and so we, we do know that COVID-19 transmission occurs, uh, through inhalation of respiratory droplets and also, um, you know, through touching um, other people, um, skin to skin and touching in infected inanimate objects. So maybe sex toys. So 
you know, when, when there's non-monogamy, when people go outside of the relationship, and they certainly have done that still during this pandemic, um, you know, it has been advised by government officials to um, not to kiss your lover um, because of the respiratory droplets inhalation. Um, and, and also proper hygiene has become really important, although I think that was just, you know, if people didn't have proper hygiene, I think that's a, a gigantic turnoff pre-pandemic and it will be post-pandemic as well. Um, so close contact between sexual partners may increase the risk of infection rates, um, in fact, because of asymptomatic carriers. So even somebody, if somebody is feeling well, um, they could be an asymptomatic carrier, so you could be at risk, although they are less likely, uh, they're not as contagious um, if they're asymptomatic. It's far more, um, far more risky if you are with somebody uh, who has a cough or has a fever um, and you're making love with them. Um, that's far more risky for you to actually contract um, COVID-19. In terms of pregnancy and infectivity, we we do know that um, there has been association um, between COVID-19 and fetal distress and preterm delivery. So that is something to consider as well. So that's why it's extre- extremely important uh, to wear a mask, remain physically distant and have good hygiene, in particular, good hand hygiene. Um you know, the relational impacts of COVID-19 cannot be overstated. Um, you know, people across the globe um, have certainly found ways to adapt and connect, especially online. Um, but during this time, there's increased levels of stress um, may actually reduce uh, sexual desire. And sexual desire is the number one reason that couples will present to sex therapists or marriage counselors. Um, and so this stress is added stress that people are feeling in their uh, in their lives can certainly decrease desire that much more. Overall, um, desire, sexual desire affects between 20, uh, 10 and 40 percent um, of people. Um, and so the other thing that we have is uh, we've been dating online for a while now. I remember talking to people and I'd ask them how they met and they'd say, don't tell anybody we met online. And, and now that's the that's the norm. And so online dating apps can facilitate that connection, um, you know, but it also, um, you know, there may be stress associated with that. But, um, you know, getting to know somebody that way online can actually um, be more of a connection um, for people. Um, Expressing intimacy through virtual or physical distance um, is, you know, is a challenging way actually to remain in a relationship, whether you are uncoupled, whether you're dating or whether you're in a long-term relationship. So there can also be fears around the virus as well. People who have a tendency toward obsessive compulsive disorder and it, and it expresses itself through cleanliness um, or fear of, of germs, um, that can actually impact a relationship as well. Um, so there are so many um, impact, so much impact um, that this coronavirus has had on a relationship. Something we never could have predicted, um, but we have had some benefits, um, and and the benefits can be you know having sex during the pandemic. Um, it's you know if you're at home and your relationship was suffering, it may be time for you to, you know, take a look at your relationship and actually work on the things because now perhaps you have 
the time to actually work on the issues. Um, the other thing is your health as well um, may impact uh, your uh, sex life also. And there are definitely physical benefits have sex uh, of having sex. Sorry, it's, it's long been understood that uh, poor health can affect sexuality. So, for example, uh, type 2 diabetes, which is preventable, um, chronic pain, which not necessarily is, um, depression, it's time to get outside and, and uh, get into nature, heart disease as well, maybe, you know, getting connected with your partner through healthy living, healthy nutrition and diet, cooking together. Um, but cancer, uh, thyroid disease, all of these um, skin conditions, there are so many, rheumatoid arthritis, there are so many conditions that can impair most areas of sexual function. Yet, we know that sexual activity is an integral contributor to quality of life and overall physical and emotional health as well. Uh, the benefit of sexual activity on cardiovascular health has been investigating, investigated, uh, and it was uh, there was a small study showing that women who endorsed emotionally satisfying sexual activity had fewer cardiovascular events in five years. And in a similar study on men, the frequency of sexual activity and cardiovascular events were inversely related. And aside from that, sex is a form of mild to moderate exercise, physical exercise, depending on how down and dirty you get. Um, Okay, so is that, that's a text, I guess. Is that, is that ta- no, is it Nor? I mean, Howard is on the line. Hello, Howard. Hello, good evening, Howard. Hello. Hello. I'll turn off this, uh, this uh, radio one moment. Okay. This, uh, yeah. <laughs> is that me in the background or someone else? Are you Hello. cheating on me, Howard? How are you? Yes. Uh, good enough. Just wanting to ask you for <laughs> advice. When. Um, uh, older men, 73 and onward, are losing staying power. Would you recommend uh, from the health food store some supplements in the form of uh, vitamins or uh, hormones or whatever it may be to, uh, to gradually bring it back or uh, the kind of food to eat? So uh, is there advice? Absolutely not. I don't recommend supplements at all unless you want to have very expensive urine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, For sure, uh, you know, a lot of men as they age may suffer erectile dysfunction, the inability to attain and or maintain an erection adequate for penetrative sex. Um, But what I would suggest is that you mention that to your doctor, the um, erectile dysfunction could be the canary in the coal mine. It can actually in, be indicative of cardiovascular disease or hypertension. Um, so it's definitely a health issue that you want to discuss with your doctor. And, and supplements, quite frankly, I know that they're marketed and they're advertised and all of this. I don't care who it is. It is it's bunk and it's just <clears throat> literally <laughs> trying to um, create expensive urine across Canada. Um, so it's definitely a health issue. Nutrition-wise, for sure, it depends if a person is overweight, obese, has type 2 diabetes. So 
the type of diet um, that you eat and you know is is critically important. So you want to have a low glycemic index diet for sure. You want to make sure that you're exercising in other ways as well. Sex is about blood flow. Um, there are conservative measures like a, a vacuum pump is uh, the Sinclair um, pump is actually a great device to bring um, blood into the penis, and you can use a penile ring to actually keep the erection for 20 to 30 minutes. Then you must remove that penile ring. Um, after that, there are also some really, um, you know, although they have side effects, but there are some safe medications, but it's definitely a health issue. It's a medical issue and it's something that one would, uh, want to discuss with their medical doctor or healthcare practitioner. What about Viagra or Cialis? Yes. Which, uh, have never been tried, but, uh, you know. Do they really work? They they work very well for a lot of men. Uh, the thing about the, the PDE5 inhibitors, that's the classification of Viagra Cialis, is that you need to try them uh, five or six times before they may actually start to take effect. So some, some guys will take them once and they'll say, oh, that didn't work. But you actually need to take those five or six times and uh, before they will work. And it's actually best in a testosterone-rich environment. And so that's why exercise is important as well and also maybe your testosterone level uh, as well so I would definitely speak to my doctor about all of those mm. issues how but does how does one bring back the testosterone level oh the testosterone well exercise is the number one way uh, to do that um, and also you can have your testosterone level checked by your doctor a man should begin to have a baseline testosterone checked at the age of 40 uh, because it will actually start to decrease after the age of about 30 so it's good to get a baseline test um, and uh, many men will actually um, lose testosterone as they age and so you can get it through exercise good nutrition and also um, there are testosterone replacement therapies as well like testosterone injections so Thank you very much for your advice. You are very welcome, Howard. Thank you so much for the call. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.